Uh, if we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Drew Lang. I'm the youth pastor here at Golfside Church, and I just want to say I'm so glad that you're here, uh, and I hope that uh, we just have a moment where we can grow in our knowledge of who God is and what he's done in the past and what he'll do for us in the future. And I figured the best way to start with that is to laugh. Now, the funny thing is I'm terrible at jokes, and I'm reminded of that daily whenever I make a joke, and I laugh, and my wife just looks at me and stares as if I, like, killed a dog or something like that. But I figured today, I will not tell a joke. I will show you a joke video. Uh, One of my favorite things to do, uh, I have two uh, twins that they're at that right age of two, where they love to talk all the time, but they don't know what they're saying, although they're very convinced that they're saying something, but we can't understand what it is. It's like getting a translator. You just don't know what you're, you're hearing. And it just brought into my head an idea of what if we went around and asked a bunch of kids some serious questions and, and heard what they said? Well, I'm not doing that. I found a video that already did that. So here you go. Can you just play that video for me? What the absolute heck is the meaning of life? I spoke to these kids to find out. All right, my friend, what would you say the meaning of life is? Um, beans. Beans? Mm-hmm. What do you mean? Beans with rice. Beans! And I love trampolines. What? I love trampolines. Trampolines and beans? Beans! What do you think the meaning of life is? Uh, that you're thankful that you even are alive. You have people who you love. What do you think the meaning of life is, my friend? Um, to play video games. Yeah, what else? To have fun while playing video games. Okay, cool, what else? To have your favorite video money for Spider-Man video games. Be absolutely obsessed with video games. Do you think you're accomplishing this? Yes. What do you think the meaning of life is? It means what happens. Yeah, what do you think? It means what happens. Why, what do you think you're here on this planet to do? What's the, the, big, the big meaning? To be on the planet? Yeah. Why do you think you're on Earth? It means to be on the planet. So, my friend, what do you think the meaning of life is? Uh, chill with the boys. How often? Every day. Every single day you're chilling with the boys? Yeah. So, uh, what do you think the meaning of life is? I playing ball all day. Ball is life? Yeah. Come on, come on, come on. Woo! Home run! You gotta be able to like be able to enjoy your life while you have one. And just chill with the boys? Mm-hmm. When you got to be able to have like some di- uh, some chips and salsa. It's fun being with my family and exciting. And I love being with my family. That's so sweet. Thank you. I really like life because it's like I get a family I can add to my family. Is this all your family? Not her. (laughs) Tell me more. Um, I love doggies. Yeah? Puppies. Can you tell me more about these beans? I love beans. What do you think the meaning of life is? 
Um, it's about um, nature, nature of life, and also nature is animals. Maybe to live, like maybe love or something. I think maybe to live. You don't seem too enthusiastic about any of these things. Well... Why do you think you were put here on this planet? Because my mommy and daddy said so. Why do you think you were put on this planet? Um, to be kind to everyone. To everyone? I guess. What if they, like, suck? I don't know. Punch them? What do you think is the meaning of life? Um, not being lonely. Oh my god. Are you okay? Yeah. Do you think you're special? To me, yeah. Do you think I'm special? Yeah. Do you think I'm more special than you? No. Why? Because. Because what? It's me. So you're more important than everyone else? Yes. You think you're more important than everyone else? Okay, maybe not. I think life is all about having friends and punching them if they suck. What do you think the meaning of life is? Everybody, it doesn't matter about money. It doesn't matter if you have a really good house. It doesn't matter about cars. It matters about the spirit. Why do you think you are here on this earth? So I can save my planet. So you're here to save your planet. The meaning of life is to be with your family and love your family. Mm-hmm. That's really beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> man, kids, man, they come up with the best answers. Uh, one thing I actually find fascinating about it is the fact that you can ask 20 kids the same question and you get 20 different answers. Going from being nice to your sister to beans and everything in between. But uh, it actually brought up a question in my head. It's also kind of interesting how you can ask 20 different adults the same question and get 20 different answers. And what's even more fascinating is how you can ask the same question to two people that have the same upbringing, the same background, and have gone through the same experiences of life and still get two different answers. So there's something interesting of the fact that you can have a question in your head and you can have certain life experiences that push you to something, but there's something else that lets you make a different decision. How else to describe this? There are identical twin studies where they follow and monitor identical twins which have exact DNA. Same household, same DNA, but oftentimes they don't make the same decisions. They have different jobs, They definitely don't marry the same person because that would be really weird. Uh, But their outlooks are also different too. So there's something beyond just your genetic makeup or your background where you have an opportunity to make a decision on what you do in your life. Uh, And it's more than than nature and nurture. It's something like like beyond that. Uh, Some people would call this free will. We have, our, we have an ability to change what we will do, and we are not predestined to do something. Some people think that we are guaranteed to go on one certain path, and you don't know what it is, and free will is an illusion. And I'm not going to go into that today because uh, my brain will explode. But what I can say is this. It seems like, at least from my study in the Bible, that 
The Bible makes a very clear argument that regardless of what your background was or what you came up with, the decision to follow Jesus is your choice. It seems that way. And we all know people that have had terrible, hard lives and made something good out of it. We also know the opposite too. People that had everything thrown at them and they ruined it entirely. And this is what makes this week so interesting because we're in week 13 of the story and this week is Solomon. And I've grown up reading the story of Solomon. I kind of know who he is. But when I really started studying this chapter specifically, I kind of realized that Solomon is one of the most fascinating characters in the Bible, partially because he has two separate reigns. The first 20 years of his reign are completely amazing. And the last 20 years of his reign, it's bad. It's really, really bad. And it's the same guy. He was given not only the perfect opportunity, he was given royalty and all the money in the world. And to see him go into two separate paths based on one simple thing is kind of fascinating. So what caused that? What allowed Solomon to not only do great things, but royally and terribly mess up? What is that underlying thing that allows us to make good decisions? And without it, we make terrible decisions. And that's what I want to really get into today. So we're going to wind the clock back a little bit on Solomon's life and go to at the very beginning of his life. Now, mind you, at this moment, he was just pronounced as king over Israel. Now, his dad had an amazing time as being king until uh, he tried to steal a man's wife and then killed a man kind of a problem, you know, being all righteous and killing a guy. Not really, doesn't really gel together. And the rest of his reign after that was full of dysfunction and failure. In fact, to the point that one of his sons, Absalom, tried his hardest to usurp his dad's throne and kill him. Now, Solomon grows up around this. He sees the highs. He sees the successes of his father. And he sees his own brother trying to kill his dad. Now, I know that a lot of us go from different backgrounds, but I don't think a lot of us, hopefully, have not had a moment where our brother tried to kill our dad, right? Like, that's pretty rare, hopefully. Um, what would that do to a kid? What, what, how would that change someone? How would that change their outlook on life? And this is what makes the story of Solomon so fascinating because the very first mention of him doing something in the Bible comes in 1 Kings uh, chapter 3. So he's at Gibeon and he is there to offer the Lord a bunch of sacrifices. And this is what it says in 1 Kings 3 to 5. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream and God asked for him, ask for it, whatever you want to give me. Now imagine going up to a random kid and saying, ask for whatever you want and it will be yours. What would they say? If I was a kid, I'd probably say I want a car, even if I can't drive it. I I actually asked a few youth students before I came up here, what what, what do you guys want? One of them had an amazing answer. Uh, She said, you know, I want to have direction and clarity in my life. I'm like, that's that's way better than I thought in high school. Jeez. Another kid's like, I want to be rich. I'm like, I see that, man. Come on. What would you do in that situation? If you had an opportunity to get whatever you want, what would you want? And this is where I find Solomon's answer so interesting because it indicates that he recognizes that truthfully, he doesn't know what to do as king. 
a young guy leading a nation of, th- of millions of people. So this is what Solomon says in 1 Kings 3, 7 through 14. Now, Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father, David, but I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great nation, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? That's an excellent answer. And I would love to say if I was in that position, I'd totally say that. I wouldn't. I'd probably say something (laughs) really dumb or really vain. So I'm in awe of that at his age, he was able to not only recognize an issue that affected his father, but give a very clear request to God. And this is what God says in the very next verse. The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, since you asked for this and not for long life or wealth for yourself or even the death of your enemies, but for discernment and administrating justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both wealth and honor, so that in your lifetime, you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in obedience, now here's the kicker. If you walk in obedience and keep my commandments, as David, your father did, I will give you a long life. Now, bro, that's a pretty incredible. All the wealth and power and all the wisdom to know what to do with all that money? Sign me up. Picture this for a second. You have unlimited money, unlimited power, and whatever you decree will happen. What would you do? And with this godly wisdom that he had, Solomon was deemed to be an excellent ruler. He would solve people's problems. He was very wise, very shrewd, to the point that he actually built the temple of the Lord, uh, a building about the size of this room. It took seven years to build. It was considered to be one of the ancient wonders of the world. And his prayer at the very end of it is that God is so big. He's so great. He can do whatever he wants. He doesn't need this building, but Lord, I pray that you come into this building because at the end of the day, this building wasn't built for my success. It was built for your success, God. That's a, a humble, wise man. How did he mess that up? What did he do? <laughs> well, he, here's a start. It took him seven years to build the temple. It took him 13 years to build his, his house. Maybe that's an indicator. There's nothing wrong with that inherently, but the Bible adds a clue later on in, in 1 Kings 11. And, and this is crucial, okay? Uh, it's not necessarily what he did, but the reasoning behind it. And, and you'll see why in a second. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Amorites, Edomites, Sidonites, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts away after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives, 700 wives. Guys, how many of you think you can do well with 700 wives? Thank God no one raised their hand right there. 
I actually calculated this. If you spent one day with each wife, it would take you two years just to have a day with each wife. Oh, but it gets better. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. I'm not necessarily going to say what a concubine does, but that's a lot. That's a lot of concubines and wives. And this is the sad part in verse four. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord, his God, as the heart of David, his father had been. He followed all the other goddesses. He did not follow the Lord completely, as David, his father said. Now, here's what's so fascinating about this, is that the Bible compares him to David. David, you know, the guy that stole Uriah's wife and then killed Uriah. But the Bible makes the point that when David did that, he came to full repentance to God, and he was still called a man after God's own heart. After all that crap, after all that disaster, he was still a man after God's own heart. But it makes a very clear distinction that that's not Solomon, that his heart was far from God. Now, in our human eyes, we would see the two decisions as, well, murder is way worse than having a lot of wives. But the distinction is that when David realized his failure, he humbled himself. When Solomon realized his failure, he did not. And this is the part that's, that's so fascinating to me. The main change between Solomon at the beginning and the end was not the wealth. He already had that. It was not the power. It was not the treaties. It was first this. He did not put God first in his life. And it seems like that when he did that, he instantly lost the wisdom that he had. I mean, I even broke it down in a graphic for you. So check out this. This is Solomon's duality, okay? Look at the first three things that he did, okay? So Solomon, socially. What did he do socially? He was loved by the people. He solved a lot of very difficult problems and everyone loved him. He thought he was a great, they thought he was a great king. Politically, David was a man of war. He had, Solomon was a man of peace. He had treaties with every major kingdom around him and they all revered him. And then religiously, he not only had a mind solely to God, but he built one of the ancient wonders of the world for God alone, not for his own wealth. After his wisdom, what did he do socially? He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. What did he do politically? He broke almost every single treaty that he had. He shortchanged uh, a bunch of them. A, a few of the treaties, people were giving him resources to build the temple, and in exchange, he would give them other resources, and almost every single time, he broke that treaty. What about religiously? He worshiped other gods. In fact, the Bible makes a point that Solomon built the temple for God. He built every single high place for every other god that all of his wives worshiped. Same guy, lack of wisdom, two different outcomes. It's almost kind of incredible to see it up there. What someone with wisdom can do and what someone without wisdom can do. How the great heights that you can achieve and the lows that you can achieve. So, I think it's fitting that we just say the first point really simply. We need wisdom. I don't know how else to say it, truthfully. Like, 
if one of the richest, wisest guys ever messed it up without wisdom, I know for a fact I can mess it up way worse. (laughs) Wisdom is so important in your life. It can help you use the blessings that you have and use the bad situations that you may find yourself in to the greatest effect. The lack of wisdom can allow you to destroy the blessings that you have and fall into deeper despair. But it's not just wisdom, okay? Here's the second point. We need godly wisdom. Because there's one thing to have wisdom and there's nothing to have godly wisdom. Let, let me give a, a quick example. Earthly wisdom would say, use all the money that you can for yourself and yourself alone. Godly wisdom says, you give God 10%, you become a person that gives and God will bless and honor that. And I have yet to find a person that has done it God's way and has become less happy than someone that does it the earthly way. What about another example? Earthly wisdom says you need to work seven days a week and do as much as you can because you're the only person that provides for your family. Godly wisdom says you work your hardest six days and honor the Sabbath, give God your best on the Sabbath, and he will provide your needs because he's the provider of all your needs. Or let me put it like this. Earthly wisdom puts everything on you and godly wisdom puts everything on God. Plain and simple. I think oftentimes we... We want knowledge, but we don't want wisdom. You can have a lot of knowledge and be very unwise. So hear me deeply from the bottom of my heart. If we want to manage what God has given us, we need godly wisdom. Now, this should be a very obvious question. How do we get that? Where does that come from? Do you take a pill and you just gain godly wisdom? Do you go to this spring and then you just are bestowed godly wisdom? How, how, does, that, how does that come in your life? And here's the third point. And this is, this is crucial. And this is the area that Solomon messed up at. Okay. We need godly wisdom that comes from the fear of the Lord. We need godly wisdom that comes from fear of the Lord. Or Proverbs 1.7 says it best. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And it seems that you can start your life outright for God, follow him, and then lose that wisdom because you followed something else. You've been away from God. So the way to gain and to maintain wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Now, That's a funny term sometimes. And for the people that come here for the first time, why do I have to be afraid of God? And there's a lot of theological debate on both sides that I've I've read on what the fear of the Lord is and and truly, but if I can just distill it into one thing, I'll just make it this. You want to fear God? Make him first and foremost in your life. Make God, God in your life. And that's how you have a healthy fear of the Lord. And godly fear comes from making him first. And this is the exact issue Solomon had. In 1 Kings eleven eleven, God says this to him directly. So the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and decrees, which I have commanded you, I will most certainly tear your kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. You want to honor God? Follow his decrees. You want to honor God? Follow his commandments. 
That's where you get a healthy fear of the Lord. Now, there's one final kicker to this. I've noticed that it's, it's incredibly easy for someone in their lowest to say they need God. It's a lot more difficult to maintain that humility as you go on in life, right? Like it's easy to rely on God when he's all you have. It's a lot harder to rely on God when you have millions of dollars. So how do we maintain the fear of the Lord, keeping our eyes on him first and foremost, making sure that he is the Lord and Savior of our life? This is, I think, the most interesting point. Point four. We need godly wisdom that comes from the fear of the Lord, and that is maintained with thankfulness. Band, you can come on up. There's an incredible quote by an amazing theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If you haven't had a chance to read his biography, read his biography. It's amazing. But this is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says. In normal life, we hardly realize how much more we receive than we give. And life cannot be rich without such gratitude. It is so easy to overestimate the importance of our own achievements compared to what we owe to the help of others. And let me add to that, I mean, let's be honest. In comparison to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I do not know a single thing. But let me add to it quickly. We do not realize how much God has given us on his power and how much it was him. And it wasn't us. And when we fail to realize that, when we fail to maintain that, oftentimes the very next step is we put ourselves first in our life, we demote God, and that's when we lose wisdom. So hear me. You want wisdom? You want the fear of the Lord? You want to maintain that in your life? Remind yourself of what God has done for you. Thankfulness is the absolute cure for pride and despair. I got married June 1st, 2020. We had a Rona wedding. That was amazing. And we told ourselves that we would not have kids for three years. It is not three years, (laughs) and we have three kids. Three months later, after that marriage, we realized that she was pregnant. And I was super excited. I know that she was excited. Until we had the ultrasound and we found out there's two of them. Now, mind you, that's never happened anywhere in my family before. So I was kind of shocked. According to my wife, I was literally staring at the screen, screen that showed the two kids in the ultrasound. And I just didn't say anything. And for those of you that know me, I usually speak a lot. So the fact that I was speechless <laughs> said a lot. <laughs> and I, I mean, I was so happy. And then there was a moment that came over me when I got home a week later and I realized we have to change everything because right now we live in a really small apartment and we already have two dogs and it's barely enough for us right now. We don't have any cars that, that can like hold our kids. We, we have s- smaller sedans and we need a minivan. Uh, we need a place to move. And oh, yeah, my wife is an independent contractor, so we need to save up money so that she has like an ability to have some time away. We need to save up money so that she can, you know, give birth. Kind of important. And it was so overwhelming. For the first month, 
I was like, Lord, I don't even know how you're gonna do this, man. And the days are clicking by and I'm thinking the list is getting bigger of what has to be done. And, and, and I'll be honest here, this is all I can do. I totally like lost heart. I felt so useless, I guess, because I didn't know what to do. Because even if people did provide for a lot of that stuff, there's so much there. And I remember I was driving my wife to work one day and one of the many times that she had some terrible morning sickness, so I would drive holding a bucket and then when she was about to throw up, I'd just pull over and I'd like hold it over there. <laughs> Things you do when, when your wife's pregnant, right? <laughs> and I, I don't know, maybe I was just tired of being unsure about the future or maybe I just kind of came to the end of myself. I, I, I don't truly know. I, I don't know how else to describe it, but I kind of said in the car, you know what? Instead of focusing on what we don't have, let's think about all the ways that God has provided for us the last couple years. Because personally, I, I feel like we're not going to make it another five months. So just help me so I can like forget about all the pain that we're going to experience the next <laughs> five months. So we started doing that. So I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm so thankful for my family. Like, man, they've been there for me through it all. And I'm so glad that they're still here. And she's like, you know what? I'm almost thankful for my family too. I have a great family. Like, yeah, you know, and I'm also thankful for you and for the way that you love me and how great of a wife you are. And she's like, you're sucking up to me. Stop it. <laughs> she's like, you know, I'm thankful that we have cars. And I'm like, I'm thankful that we don't have any school debt. You know, I'm thankful that we have enough money to pay for all the food. I'm thankful that we have enough money to pay for gas. I'm thankful we have friends. I'm thankful we have family. And the crazy thing happened. In that moment, nothing changed. But my perspective changed. And I no longer viewed my current future and all the list of things that we had to get as an issue. I was now, there was something that just changed in my heart. Like I knew God was going to provide. And I just became so thankful for what he's done that I literally like kind of broke into tears when I was driving. And I was like, you know, I don't know how God's going to do this. I don't know how he's going to provide, but I just know that he's going to provide because he's such a good God. I'm here, so God provided. <laughs> Isn't it crazy how nothing can change, but when you approach God with a thankful heart, you're able to kind of see through the fog and you're able to realize what's actually important. So as a young 26-year-old with three kids that's barely surviving sometimes because his kids are a little bit crazy, I don't know much, but I do know this. If we can maintain thankfulness, if we can maintain humility, if we can just remind ourselves what God has done, I think a lot of the fear and anxiety that we deal with on a daily basis, it's not that it doesn't matter anymore, it's just that there's something more important and that's God. So I'd encourage you, no matter what you're going through, no matter what you're experiencing right now. And I get it, life can be hard, but set your eyes on God first and remind yourself, speak to your soul what he's done for you. Remind yourself every other time that he's provided. And we all have those moments. We just gotta remind ourselves about that. And I can guarantee you this, when you set your eyes on the Lord first, the author and perfecter of your faith, he'll work things out. 
So as we end today with a really appropriate song about gratitude for what God has done, as the band plays, I I would encourage you, don't stand. Take a moment. And just think about what God's done in your life. Write them down. There's an old hymn that says, count your blessings, just like sheep. So count your blessings. Count the times that God has provided. Count the times that he's come through for you. Count the times that he hasn't left you. And watch how your soul rises from the ashes and you're able to see your situation for what's truly going on. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I just thank you for the opportunity to be here today. And Lord, I know for me personally, I can get caught in the rat race thinking about what I don't have or what I'm about to achieve that I forget what you've already given me. So Lord, for me personally, help me realize that you're all I need. You're enough. You provide. You're the great provider. You've done so much in the past. And if you're the same God yesterday, today, and forever, and you've provided in the past, what makes me think you're not going to provide in the future? So that I pray for every person here that you open our eyes to how good you are and how you will provide and that we trust you in that. Lord, I thank you for what you've done. Lord, I praise you for your bounty.